this is a really, really smart group of kids. And so I wanted to talk to you about an aspect of weather, which is called the jet stream. Now, first, I want to see how much you already know about the jet stream. That way I can tailor my presentation and I can hopefully teach you something new. So I'm going to ask, because when I share my screen like this, I can't see the chat. But can you put in the chat what is your definition of a jet stream? And any answer is okay, but what does jet and stream mean? And why do we put them both together? And if somebody can read those responses at, as they're put in the chat, that would be great. So let's start by asking, what is a jet stream? Now, we can multitask. So while you're entering that into the chat, I'm gonna go ahead and start with my slideshow. So again, this is MoCo Scientist for Kids. Um, I'm so glad that you all were able to join us. And as you can see here, it's a program to increase awareness on science, technology, engineering, and math, also known as STEM. And we try to have virtual presentations so that we can reach far and wide. Um, and sometimes the presentations are even recorded. So then that way, if someone missed it, they can come back and they can hear a little bit more about it. And so my name is Candace Boyd, and I work for what's called the National Science Foundation. And so that's a federal agency, and we are so excited because we help fund research, which, which helps us learn about the world around us and hopefully can help us make informed decisions based on the research, the data, and the information. All right, so now, like I said, let's talk about that jet stream. So basically, the reason why we have a jet stream is because things on our earth are not equal. So for example, our earth rotates and when our earth rotates, when we're closer or we're facing the sun, that's when we get sunlight and we usually get heat. When we are not facing the sun, we don't get that sunlight and we don't get that heat. So what happens over time is that you have some areas of the earth that are warm or warmer or warming. And you have some areas of the earth that are cool, cooler or cooling. And as a result of this imbalance, you have a temperature imbalance that actually can start forming what are called circulations in the atmosphere, okay? So it's called an unequal heating of the earth. Now, I know these words are really, really tiny, but the whole point here is to understand that depending on, on where you are on the earth, the temperature may be different. If the temperature may be different, your atmosphere might be different. If your atmosphere might be different, then the circulations are different and the circulations are different, then that usually drives what we call weather. So that's why we can say, because weather over time is what we call climate. So you hear this term climate, climate change, global warming. They're all very similar because it's trying to tell us what are the trends of weather over time. And so as you can see from this slide, this the second bullet, as you move further from the equator, sunlight becomes more spread out and weaker and it creates slightly cooler temperatures. So that's why we kind of have uh, circulations. Now, what's really important to understand is that when we look at these circulations over time, we start to see what are called trends. And especially in the atmosphere, when we have satellites and we're looking down at the earth, we can see these trends over time and we can start saying, okay, we know what's gonna happen in the future based on these circulations. So let me show you an example. This or these, cause there's three images here, they all show you what's the jet stream. So believe it or not, we have a jet stream over the United States as we speak. And it really helps drive our weather in terms of the direction that the weather will move. Sometimes the jet stream can also influence the extremity 
or how extreme the weather will be. So sometimes you hear that, oh my goodness, it's gonna be really, really cold and the temperature is gonna drop and you're gonna need your coat and you need your gloves and you're going to need your hat. Many times you can take a look at the circulation and say, well, you can see the circulation is coming from the colder portions of the, of the world, like the North Pole and the South Pole toward our area. And then likewise, that drives some of our temperatures. So if you're looking at this, this slide that I'm showing you right now, the one on the left, that's kind of showing you the jet stream. You see that large plume of yellow and red, and you see it starts all the way in the ocean. And that ocean to the left, well, I should ask you, do you guys know what the, the ocean that's west of the United States? All right, I see a hand up. You can unmute yourself and tell me. The Pacific Ocean. That's right, you, you, you get a point for that. Thank you so much. All right, does anybody know what the ocean is to the east? of the United States. All right, go right ahead. Atlantic. And that's exactly right. So 48 of our 50 states are all together and sometimes we call that the contiguous United States or we call it, call it the lower 48. And so west of that is the Pacific, east of that is the Atlantic. And you can see from this first image on the bottom left that the actual jet stream circulations actually wrap around the entire globe. So you can see that it actually extends from as far west as the Pacific all the way over the continental United States, which is 3,000 miles west to east, and then all the way to the Atlantic. And so what you can see is, is that when you dip upward, that actually means you're bringing warm air from the south and you're pushing it up. But also you can see in this image on the right-hand side, when it starts in the north and it plunges to the south, you're actually bringing cold air further south. So that's one of the reasons why meteorologists who are people who study the weather, people like me, we can take a look at the jet stream and that can help us forecast or figure out what the weather is gonna be. Now. Believe it or not, there's more than one jet stream. And that's what that top picture is showing you. You have what's called a polar jet stream. And that one is close to the North Pole. You sometimes have what's called a subtropical jet stream. And sometimes that is a little further south, like the Southern states, like California, Arizona, Texas, even Florida might experience the subtropical jet stream as well. And believe it or not, if you look south of the equator, you can see that there are jet streams as well. And um, so it's interesting and it's really important to take a look at all of the different circulations and how the jet stream affects it. And then this last picture right here is just showing you that, I said this earlier, but when the sun comes up and the sun shines on the earth, most of the heating you can feel or you can feel the effects at the equator. And the further you move north and south, that's when you sometimes have some fluctuations. And it's because of these fluctuations, these changes, these in, um, inaccuracies, so to speak, or you know, they're, in, they're not exactly equal. The reason why we have these um, in, in unequal circulations, that actually helps form our weather and it actually helps form what's called the jet stream as well. All right, so what four gases make up the atmosphere? Now, I, I ask this question all the time, and you can see on the slide, it's nitrogen, oxygen, argon, and carbon dioxide. Now, here's the hard question. When do 
or what, when do we use nitrogen or when do we hear about nitrogen or where in our world would you see nitrogen? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you can go ahead. Isn't nitrogen mostly at the poles? Uh, so good, good, yeah, good point. The majority of our, our air is made up of four main components and the majority of those components, the largest one is nitrogen. So yes, nitrogen is at the poles. Sometimes nitrogen is in soil. So think about crops and farming and irrigation and things like that. You might have a lot of nutrients in the soil and one of them might be nitrogen. I see a hand up. Um, Anya, did I get that name right? Yeah, um, plants need nitrogen to grow. That is it. Great answer. Yes, plants need nitrogen to grow. Now think about how many plants we have, um, not only in the United States, but around the globe. So nitrogen is really important. And that's one of the major gases that we have. Because again, plants need nitrogen to grow. Oxygen. Well, guess what? Human beings like you and me, animals, we all need oxygen to breathe in. We breathe in oxygen and then help me out here. What do we breathe out? Go ahead. Yeah, you can unmute. Carbon dioxide. That's right. That's right. So that's why you see oxygen and you see carbon dioxide. So they're kind of hand in hand. So as we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. And then let's go back to those plants that we were just talking about. Those plants take in carbon dioxide and they um expel oxygen so it's a it's a it's a really great balance that's why we really want trees and plants and vegetation to help balance what humans are doing now i see two hands up now i'm not sure if they were still up from before or if they're new hands so let me start with maya maya did you have a question what's argon you know what? I was just going to talk about that. I, I, well, I wanted to first ask and see if anybody knew what argon was. It's the fourth type of gas that we have in our atmosphere. Has anyone ever heard of the word argon before? Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. I see some I see two people who had their hands up. And I see someone just joined. Thank you so much for joining. We're all muting ourselves unless we're talking. That way we, we won't have a lot of background. Okay, so I think there was two people who said they, they want to take a stab at it. What is argon? Okay, I, say, I see Anya's hand up. I see Maya's hand up. What's argon? You can go ahead and unmute and, and answer. It's a noble gas. Oh, awesome. Wow, I think you can teach this better than I can. It is a noble gas, absolutely. So if you look at our atmosphere and you try and dissect it, these are the four gases, and I'm gonna emphasize the word gas, that you have in the atmosphere. But there's something else in the atmosphere that helps that jet stream. So you saw it on the images. I wanna see if anybody was able to pick it out. What else would be in the jet stream? Okay, Anya, go ahead. Water. That's exactly it. So water or sometimes we call it water vapor is a part of the jet stream as well because remember about three quarters of the earth is all water oh i see a hand up go ahead um i'm i want to answer the why is water vapor important okay great go right ahead water vapor is important because um first of all it makes the clouds and second of all, if we didn't have, um, if the water, 
if there wasn't water vapor and when uh water evaporated where would it go would it just go poof you know what that's a great question my next slide is going to kind of answer that and that, so the question is where does the water vapor go so it, I don't have a slide on this, but the answer is called the water cycle. So believe it or not, the amount of water we have on earth is finite. In other words, it's a set amount. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. Now, what does happen over time is that water shifts and moves from place to place. How does it move and shift from place to place? The atmosphere and the jet stream. So again, the jet stream is made up those of those four main gases, but also water vapor. And again, water usually starts in our oceans, our rivers and our streams. It evaporates into the air. And then because of circulations and the jet stream, it moves from place to place. And so we all, we all should know this is that when you have too much water, you have what's called floods. And when you don't have a lot of water, you have what's called droughts. So depending on where you are in the United States or around the world, you might be experiencing a lot of water, which is flooding, or not a lot of water, which is droughts. Okay, I see a hand up. Go right ahead. Um, also, when um, when salt water, even though salt water is a mixture, and a and the salt will settle at the bottom of the ocean, um, when water is evaporated, salt. The, the the salt can't evaporate with the water, so it has to go down, making more fresh water, meaning that if it rains down over land, it can make more uh, fresh water rivers and streams and lakes. You know, that is an excellent concept because a lot of people have always asked me, well, how come the oceans are salty and salt water? And then how come our rivers and streams and our lakes our fresh water, and you just provided the answer. So you get a gold star. I wish I could give you a gold star through the screen, but that's a very good answer that you had. Now, the other question you had, I wanna answer, and that is, well, we have all this water vapor and the water vapor is escaping from the oceans into the atmosphere. You said, how come it just doesn't go poof, right? And that's because we have layers of the atmosphere, okay? Now you might be familiar with this, or if not, I'll talk you through this. So believe it or not, there's five different layers of the atmosphere. You have the troposphere, that's where we live and we interact, and that is where um, all of our weather occurs. The next one is the stratosphere. And sometimes you hear about meteorologists, people like me, that we wanna know what's going on up and down the atmosphere. So usually we release what are called weather balloons and they take measurements as the balloon goes higher and higher and higher in the air. And eventually the balloon goes so high that it actually bursts and then the, the sensor or the instrument falls back to the ground. You have a hand up, go right ahead. Um, so the troposphere is also where the atmosphere interacts with the geosphere and the hydrosphere. Absolutely, great answer, thank you. Um, Maya, I see your hand up as well. Do you have a question? So the meteorologists, like, did they find out the weather for like people on the news? You know what, that's a great question. So yes, on the news you have meteorologists. 
And so we, we are all friendly and we all have one goal and that's to inform people about what's going on with the weather. So sometimes you have people who are behind the scenes. You have meteorologists that maybe work for the government. You have meteorologists that work for the private sector. And you even have meteorologists that are in academia and they research. And you have meteorologists that are on TV. So the answer is we all share information. And we all share forecasts and the meteorologists on TV, it's their job to relay that information to the public. Uh, Maya, you have your hand up. Like also, can chlorine also only be found in pools? Yeah, one more time, please. Can chlorine also like only be found in pools? Uh, chlorine. No, chlorine can be found in the environment as well. So, so yeah, that's a very good question, but you're right. Uh, we usually manufacture chlorine and we put it in pools because that helps maintain the stability and, and the water balance um, in, in the pool. So thank you for that question. All right, so what I wanna go back to is this column of air. Now we talked about the troposphere, we talked about the stratosphere, next is the mesosphere um, as well. And then you can see here from the image, as you get to the thermosphere, see how long the thermosphere is? It's actually the biggest part of the entire column when we think about different slices of the atmosphere. And then the exosphere, oh my goodness, the exosphere is literally when you leave the Earth's orbit all the way to fill in the blank. So it could be to a meteor, it could be to the moon, it could be to the sun, it could be to another planet. And so the exosphere really, really is the longest or, or the biggest one, depending on where you're, where you're trying to measure. But here in the United States, when we think about the atmosphere, we basically think about the troposphere because that's the lowest level. Now, how thick are these? Now, you can kind of tell from this image that, of course, the thermosphere is the biggest of the five. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my slide right here. And you can see the troposphere is only about four miles high. Not, not that high, right? Um, airplanes fly in this space as well. You hear you hear 30,000 feet, 40,000 feet for some planes. Um, that's within the troposphere. So a lot happens in the troposphere, and that's where we have most of our weather. The next one is the stratosphere. That could be an additional 12 miles straight up, okay? So when we talk about the um, breaking the sound barrier and we have shuttles that are going into space, they have to go through this um, layer called the stratosphere. Mesosphere, that's an additional 31 miles up, straight up. And then the thermosphere, that's the largest one, it could be up to 53 miles. And then after that, if you add up all those numbers, all the way up to like 375 miles, is that's where the exosphere starts. And again, as I said, the exosphere can be from the Earth's atmosphere to a meteor, another planet, or the, the moon or the sun. Uh, you have your hand up? Go right ahead. So in the um in the thermosphere, I know the first thing is the um the aurora borealis, but what are the other two things? The, is that oh. a satellite, and what is that squiggly line? Good point. So that's trying to show like the space shuttle. Have you heard of something called the International Space Station (ISS)? Yeah, right. Well, that's how high up the International Space Station is. The International Space Station is probably within the highest levels of the thermosphere. Now, the Aurora Borealis, um, I'm, I'm really impressed that you know what that is. It's a, it's a weather phenomena where you can actually see different atmospheric phenomena 
and you can see the sky and you can see um, different colors in the sky. And usually you have to go further north in order to see the Aurora Borealis. Now, when I say further north, I'm saying like Canada, um, Alaska, <laughs> you know, those yeah. those areas. So, so I think most of you are probably in the Maryland area. You know, you probably won't see the Aurora Borealis from your, they call it your naked eye on a clear night. You'd usually have to go further north to see that. But the point is, how high in the atmosphere are you looking? You're looking up to 53 miles up in the atmosphere, and that's the thermosphere. Okay, so great, okay. great question. Thank you. What's that? Oh, what's that? Like that the white line that's going like up and down, up and down. Up oh and yeah, down. the squiggly line. It's just it's literally for us. The edge of our atmosphere is the top of the thermosphere, and then the exosphere is then when you exit Earth's atmosphere and beyond. So I think that's what the squiggly line is just trying to show you. That is the barrier between, you know, Earth and the ex exosphere. So I'm really, I really love that you're very observant. That's awesome. I was told that this was a great group to work with and I can see why. All right, well, I'm looking at the time. It's 4.56. I know we usually like to keep these really short, but now I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna open it up to questions about jet stream questions about meteorology or just any questions that you have in general okay so let me end my slideshow and i will try to stop sharing <laughs> all right let's see there we go all right and i think we're back to normal all right maya you have a question go right ahead so can, can meteorologists like use other like other things than balloons to measure the weather, like like rocket ships like that? Yeah, so the answer is yes. Meteorologists need a lot of help to create the forecast. We need information from a variety of sources. So you're absolutely right. Um, yes, you can use a weather balloon to um, gather data throughout the atmosphere. Sometimes we have instruments on the ground that measure information. So temperature, uh, dew point, wind, cloud cover, those are all things that we can measure as well. And then we also have satellites. Now, I know there's all different types of satellites. You have communication satellites, like if you have a cell phone or if you have a parent or, or caregiver with a cell phone. Um, sometimes we have what are called defense satellites, but we also have what are called environmental satellites, which literally look at the earth, take measurements of the earth, and they pass that information on to meteorologists. So Maya, to answer your question, uh, we have what's called ground truth data that we use to create the forecast. We have satellite data that we use to create the forecast. We have the weather balloon information that we use to create the forecast. So we take a lot of pieces of information and we take it all together and we use what are called models, um, meteorological models, to create the forecast. Now, depending on what you're trying to forecast, you can forecast a day in the future, a week in the future. And then remember what I said about weather and climate, weather over time is climate. So we actually have models that can look as far into the future as 10 years, 20 years. In some cases, they can look a hundred years into the future and give us predictions on what we think might happen. All right, I see your hand up, go right ahead. So for so first of all, for the ones where it goes like 10, 20, 100 years in the future, uh, are those always accurate? 
Well, we hope that the models are as accurate as possible. So to answer your question, it's not only important to issue a forecast, but then you need to go back behind it and we call, what we call verification, you need to verify it. So believe it or not, there's forecasts from 20, 30 years ago that we're talking about what was gonna happen today. And we're looking at those forecasts and we're trying to figure out how can we make those forecasts better for the future. So your the answer is meteorologists are, especially those who use models, we're always trying to improve the forecast. And you need to do that by analyzing and you need to do that by verifying the forecast as well. Okay, uh, I have another question. Sure. What is the biggest jet stream? The biggest now, okay, well, it depends. Now that word biggest, I'm gonna kind of change the word a little bit. Um, sometimes you measure a jet stream in terms of its speed. Sometimes you measure a jet stream in terms of its width, in terms of, how much land or how much of the ocean it covers. I mean like land and ocean. Okay, land and ocean. So I would say in general for the United States, we have that subtropical jet stream. That's the one that tends to affect us the most. Now the polar jet stream during the winter months that affects us as well. And so when you'll hear a meteorologist on TV say, we have a cold snap coming, you know, meaning, oh my goodness, all of a sudden it's just, you know, 20, 30 degrees, uh, different than maybe it was, yeah, before, you know, you're going to have to take a, another layer of clothes when you, when you go to, to school or when you go outside of the home. So it just depends, but I would say there's two main jet streams that affect the United States, the polar and the subtropical. And especially for this area, um, most of us are in the Washington DC area. We tend to feel that subtropical, um, jet stream, uh, the most. Okay. I see a hand up. Uh, Maya, do you have a question? Yeah, Lucas, you're right. This is happening a lot right now. So, wait. So do meteor like? So can like meteorologists go like like see what's happening like oh, like the weather that's gonna be like next week? Can they see that? So so yes. Um, the whole point of meteorology is to forecast the future and to help us understand the atmosphere a little bit better. So yes, um, depending on the model that they're using, they can look into the future a day, a week, sometimes even months and years. So it just depends on what they're measuring. And then also if they're using a model, what that time frame is for that particular model. So thank you for that. Um, I see a hand up B. Um, 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 like how often do these jet, do these jet streams come? Great question. So the jet stream is there at all times. Now it shifts sometimes. Sometimes it shifts northward, it shifts um, uh, southward. Uh, the term sometimes we use is called amplify, which means maybe when it goes north, it goes really, really north and it deeps really, really south. So you have big uh, waves or you have you know um, big troughs as well. So it's always there, but sometimes it's more pronounced or it's stronger than it is at other times. Okay. So that's a, that was a great question. Thank you, B. All right, I see Jonas. Did you have another question? So, for the um, for like how it used to be that hurricanes weren't thought to be able to hit Galveston, why was that thought? Okay, that hurricanes were not supposed to hit Galveston. You said. Yeah. Why? Why was it thought that hurricanes could not hit Galveston? 
Hmm, now that's a good, that's a great question. Now I'll just tell you what I know um, from hurricanes. Hurricanes actually start in Africa. Um, there's a lake, it's called Lake Chad. And again, hurricanes start as a circulation and then they actually move west. And as they move over the ocean, they start getting stronger and they start building. And, and as they get stronger, they start circulating. And the stronger they get, the more defined they get, they then develop what's called an eye, which really means it's an area where there's no clouds at all, which is really interesting. But as they as it gets stronger and it starts circulating and it moves west, it really has the potential to hit a, a lot uh, a, a lot of the United States, a lot of Mexico, even Central America. So your question, you know, why do hurricanes not hit Galveston? Um, I do believe that there have been some hurricanes. Yeah, that there have been like. Well, the main major one was 1900, and that was when they they were like, "Oh, a hurricane can't hit Galveston. It's impossible." Yeah, well, that's a great point. And so, remember what I said before about not only do uh, meteorologists issue forecasts, but they have to go back and analyze. And so, I think if you go back and analyze, hurricanes have hit Canada, hurricanes have landed in the United States. Uh, a lot of the islands in the Caribbean have been affected, Mexico, even Central America. So I, I, I would say any of those locations are subject to a hurricane. So it's really important for not only information, but the other word that we use a lot is what's called preparedness. And that's why I like to give these talks because we just need to talk and make sure that people understand no matter where you go in the United States or the world for that matter, there's going to be some type of weather that you're going to have to encounter. And what we're finding is over time, some of these weather events are becoming stronger, they're becoming more impactful, they're becoming more devastating. And so I don't know how many of you have just watched the news in the past couple of days, but there's been tornadoes just yesterday. And these tornadoes literally are strong enough where they can take a house and flip the house several times. So flip the house, you know, uh, same thing with cars. It, um, trees that are hundreds of years old have literally been you know snapped in two so the point is is that while it, our atmosphere is awesome and it's beautiful and it's exciting and i think i think it's just wondrous to look at it's also impactful and that's why 